Say hello to a new friend on an old road. Take a two-lane trip of memories into mysteries unknown. Come along for the ride. Jim Hinckley's America. Jim Hinckley's America. Hey, good morning, everyone. A little bit of music here from Joe and Woody and the boys, the road crew. If you need a great theme song for your road trip adventure, look no further than roadcrew66.com. <clears throat> hey, this morning, I'll we'll continue our little bit of a journey through automotive history. Fascinating little story, the, some excerpts from some articles in uh, the old Automobile Quarterly, some research I've done. We weave it in together into a rich little tapestry. <clears throat> uh, Friday morning on Wake Up With Jim, we'll be talking about uh, three great American uh, classics, the Duesenberg, the Corvette, and the Edsel. That'll wrap up our uh, automotive programs this week. So here we go. His name was Cad Walleter Washburn Kelsey, though he early shortened that for obvious reasons to CW, and he asked everybody to call him Carl. He spent his childhood in Chestnut Hill, Pennsylvania, and he built his first car there in 1897 at the tender age of 17. It was, as he reminisced many years later, a 100% flop. It never did run. But his second car did. It was a three-wheeler with a one-cylinder engine called the Auto Try, and he produced it that year following with a classmate from Harvard College. And so did his third car. It had one more wheel and one more cylinder, but like the others, was strictly a schoolboy's whim. Soon after graduation, Carl decided he'd better get down to the business of making a living. If he couldn't do that building his own cars, and he didn't think so, there had been no rush to his workshop door. He could do the next best thing. He could sell someone else's. So he started selling auto cars in Chestnut Hill. And then he opened a garage in nearby Germantown and contracted for and, well, became a locomobile agent. And he started tinkering and building another car. He just couldn't help himself. He gave it no name, but he called it a monster. Its wheelbase was 120 inches and its engine had four cylinders, and he was kind of unhappy with the results. Meanwhile, he continued to sell cars. He found Maxwell fascinating. He thought here was a new car that looked like it could go places, and Carl Kelsey wanted to go along. So he simply wrote Maxwell Briscoe at their headquarters in Terrytown, New York, and requested that Maxwell Agency for Philadelphia. And Benjamin Briscoe said he could have it, for a $5,000 investment. He put up the cash, procured a small showroom and service station on Broad Street, well, and he was in business. There was a bit of Barnum, of P.T. Barnum in Carl Kelsey. He didn't originate the stunting for sales techniques, but he sure honed it to a fine art. The steepest steps of the poshest establishments in Philadelphia were his venue, 
He drove the Maxwell up everyone he could find, and he contracted Lubin Film Studios, a pioneer cinematography firm that supplied Nickelodeons the day, to capture his stunts on film, the first filmed automotive commercials. Well, the results were headlines, an occasional near arrest, and a lot of publicity. Next came a thousand-mile nonstop Maxwell run up and down Broad Street, and more publicity. Meanwhile, at the headquarters in Terrytown, the folks at Maxwell, Maxwell Briscoe were pondering why more of their cars were being sold in Philadelphia than anywhere else in the country. It was the early fall of 1905. Carl Kelsey was 25 years old, and he really got to work. The Maxwell was a good car, mind you, and would have succeeded regardless of how it was sold. But the new sales manager was soon selling them as fast or faster than Maxwell Briscoe could make them. Production practically doubled each year. Carl Kelsey, as their sales manager, transformed Briscoe Maxwell. Carl built up the most powerful sales organization in the industry, and he went on making his movies for Nickelodeons and Maxwell agencies, and he sent Maxwell's up steps back and forth on teeter boards. He sent them on endurance runs like a 10,000 miler and just in Boston. He entered the Glidens and won the Deming Trophy in 1906, and his Maxwell won its class at Mount Washington. He sent a contingent of stripped roadsters to the light car race preceding the grand prize of 1908. And early the year next, he sent a willing lady named Alice Ramsey across the continent in a touring car. When the staff and management at uh, Maxwell Briscoe had hired Carl as their national sales manager, they'd hired a winner. In an era when anything more formidable than a frying pan was generally considered too much for the gentle sex to help to handle, what could be more headline attracting than having Alice Ramsey drive cross country? No other transcontinental adventure, not even Cannonball Baker in his prime, got the press attention that Alice did. Carl Kelsey gave her a new Maxwell for her efforts and sent the used one on an exhibition tour. Meanwhile, Benjamin Briscoe was having dreams of empire. What Billy Durant was cooking up with General Motors, Briscoe would concoct with his United States Motor Company. Carl thought it was a dreadful ideal, and he resigned. He would have probably left regardless. He was getting the itch to build a car again. This was uh, summer of 1909. The vehicle that ensued, his next endeavor, had actually been designed as a Maxwell. Carl Kelsey had been among its most ardent proponents. Indeed, the sketches had been drawn up at his Terryton home. It was rather like uh, any Maxwell, except for its feature of full front doors, a decided novelty for an open touring car, and one that Carl thought was a surefire seller. But Maxwell had opted to abandon the project, so Carl took it up again on his own. He called the car the Spartan. It had four cylinders, a 104-inch wheelbase, and sold for $1,000. Production totaled one car. The prospectus that Carl Kelsey had sent out to hope for investors glowed with optimism. It was as much a pee unto the automobile itself. The only thing since the beginning of time that has come forward as a true rival of the horse he promoted 
Well, very quickly, Carl Kelsey concluded the Spartan wasn't the car with it wasn't going to work. For one thing, the front door idea had been adopted by others, so it no longer had any novelty. So he sat back and wondered what he would do now. One solution suggested itself immediately. If Henry Ford was going to undersell Carl Kelsey's Spartan, Carl Kelsey would undersell Henry Ford's Model T. But how? In a word, the motorette. <clears throat> Excuse me. The motorette was a vehicle in a class by itself. Carl Kelsey was thinking three wheels. Just about everybody else had given up on the idea of a trike, but he reasoned this was because of the unsurmountable difficulties they had encountered, which he would surmount. For example, tipping over or leaning when cornering. Well, that was less likely in any case with a single wheel at the rear of the car than at the front. We found it essential that the one wheel in the rear must be at right angles to the road surface at all times, he later wrote. He invented what he called a stabilizer, a crossbar, and a system of links and levers so connecting the front axle with the frame that both of the full electric front springs were forced to act together. It was so simple of an idea, Carl Kelsey wondered why no one had thought of it before. He wrote, like the warping of the wings on a flying machine invented by the Wright brothers. The motorette had a simple 74-inch wheelbase, 56 and 3 quarter inch tread. It weighed a mere 900 pounds and steering by tiller, drive by chain. Its engine was a sweet little two-cylinder unit of 10 horsepower designed by Carl Kelsey. Its frame was pressed steel like a Packard's, its front axle and I-beam drop forging like a Pierce Arrows, and its seat was pressed steel like an Overland's. Its full elliptic springs of vanadium steel were like a locomobile, and its wheels artillery like sterns. And it had a two-speed transmission like a Buick. Its cooling was thermosiphon like a Renault, and its radiator tubular like an Alco. The foregoing big name dropping was Carl Kelsey's, aimed at distinguishing the motorette from the sleazy, cheap little runabouts, which were tended to give economical motoring a bad name. Part for part, as well-built as a $6,000 car, was a popular Kelsey advertising refrain. Not noted in the ad copy, but equally as significant was the fact that at $385, the motorette was just one half of the price of a Ford Model T. Kelsey introduced the motorette at the Grand Central Palace in Manhattan on New Year's Eve, 1910. As he would proclaim later, Critical New York accepted it with acclaim. The seal of approval of the Metropolis was placed on it. The occupants of fur coats and $8,000 Knox hats, who had just alighted from the big touring cars, found it interesting. The man in the slouch hat and last year's overcoat looked at the motorette with pleasure. Fifty motorettes were ordered at the New York Auto Show. Kelsey was convinced that he'd found a winner. The C.W. Kelsey Manufacturing Company was incorporated in the state of New York. The factory was in Hartford, Connecticut, and a spirit of optimism reigned supreme. The company's task, of course, was to make the advantage of the motorette known and have its unique character 
apparent by the absence of a second rear wheel, accepted. The three-wheel car was tackled first among its factors, superiority, being that the machine was always on three-point suspension. And thus, the rough road surfaces would never cause the car to twist or throw out of alignment. Enough publicity photos were taken to assure all concerned the motorette could not tip over. But the Kelsey organization never lost an opportunity to further nail down the reliability of the motorette. When the U.S. government specified three-wheelers for mail collection, Kelsey advertising was quick to point out that Uncle Sam does not jump at conclusions. Paramount and Kelsey's promotion was the factor of savings, which allied itself nicely with the fact that the only cheap thing about a motorette was its price. Allusions to its bigger brothers in the marketplace, as mentioned earlier, made one point with a minimum, and what the motorette didn't have that its bigger brothers did made the other. The lack of a fourth wheel meant that one wouldn't have to buy tires for it. The motorette sported heavy motorcycle tires in the front, an automobile tire for the driving wheel, and the whole set could be purchased for a mere $47.50. The motorette's construction eliminated, quote, a differential with four gears, six bearings, and housing, a rear axle with five bearings, drive shaft, and universal joints. And, as promoted, its little two-cycle water-cooled engine had but five moving parts. 20 less than their four-stroke variety. And as he was quick to point out, this meant there are no valves to grind, no springs to get out of order, no push rods, no cams, no camshafts, no valve plugs, and no camshaft gearing. The motorette did away with the necessity of a body. The frame so serving and the seat was attached to it, why, it was just wonderfully simple. As he said, a healthy girl of 10 or even a woman can crank this car. Only the most primitive automotive skills were required to operate it, and it rode as smoothly as a four-wheeler under almost all conditions. Carl Kelsey proudly displaying a letter sent him by the Hilliers Poultry Plant, allowing that in two months of service over rough rural roads, the company's motorette, sometimes transporting 100 pounds of eggs, did not break one of them. This was the commercial variety of motorette with a package carrier up front. And then there was the matter of speed. The motorette's top speed was 25 miles per hour. But there was a rationale behind this. As Kelsey would later say, that was the average at which a motor car was usually run, and the occasional outburst of greater speed wasn't worth the difference between $385 and the cost of a big car. But if the motorette lacked pretense in the miles per hour arena, it found hustlings upon which to prove itself. The Motorette was one of three cars, a Stanley Steamer and a Napier. The other two made it to the top of Mount Washington one day. And though the AAA disallowed competition by cars with wheels numbering less than four, the Motorette entered the Glidden Tour as a non-contestant. It had less than half the horsepower of the next smallest car and performed so admirably, AAA lifted its ban on three-wheeled cars. And to demonstrate its towing power, a motorette pulled a 5,700-pound Alco truck through the streets of Philadelphia during rush hour. If there was a snowstorm, Kelsey and the motorette were out in it, going from here to there, advertising in newspapers the next day. 
but his greatest publicity grabber was the Motorette's cross-country trek. This was no run for the speed record. But unlike most transcontinentals of the day, it wasn't announced and its terminus either. We're going about it now before the start. We won't pull our stunt off in the dark and then explore it when it's over. And the Motorette did win. After several months on the road, the only incident in the entire trip was three days that its drivers spent in jail in Ludlow, California. After it was discovered, they had commandeered the tracks of the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe for their personal right-of-way. But the motorette did not survive three days before Christmas in 1911. With business moving briskly during the early months, Carl Kelsey had elected to concentrate on chassis manufacturing, and he turned over engine production to Lycoming in Pennsylvania. The Lycoming factory was struck by union organizers, so there were no engines. Motorette chassis piled up in Hartford as dealers clamored for cars. The strike was settled, but not the problems. Motorettes were assembled and delivered, and then reports began coming in. The engines were freezing up. They were checked in the crankcase of each and every blessed one of them, a half a teacup of sand. Sabotage. The motorette was finished. With less than a year behind it, it couldn't weather such a blow to its image of reliability. In his later years, Carl Kelsey would try again with another car, the Friction Drive Kelsey, and he would turn to advertising and banking and more inventions and new ideas until death took him away from his tinkering in 1970. All the way to the end, Carl Kelsey regretted the failure of the motorette. He said, quote, a more experienced man than I would have succeeded. But how? If anyone could have put over the motorette, Carl Kelsey could. Just look at the beguiling car it was. We have to question what might have been. Folks, you know, the American auto industry in uh, the first decades of the 20th century, the diversity was just absolutely astounding. The creative spirits had been unleashed. Uh, real heady time. Hey, I hope you enjoyed this program. Hope you found it uh, fascinating. And uh, Friday morning, we're going to talk about three uniquely American vehicles. The Chevrolet Corvette, the mighty Duesenberg, and the Edsel. I think you're going to enjoy this. And don't forget, hey, we've moved uh, Sunday morning's uh, program, Coffee with Jim. We're going to be talking about uh, road trips, Route 66, 2022. We really like to hear from you and your friends. If you're planning a trip, all or part. We're going to share ideas, discuss uh, Route 66 restaurants, motels, travel apps, travel guides, everything you need for a successful Route 66 adventure. And uh, with that said, I'll give a shout out to our good friends at Route Trip USA, the bespoke road trip specialist uh, for a grand adventure on highways of America or Canada, Route Trip USA. With that said, I guess we're going to bid adios unless we have any questions that we can answer for you. We'd be more than happy to feel free to chime in. We do have this set up for a uh, call in, or you can just simply type in a message during the program.
Come along. Well, hope you'll be joining us on Friday morning. Invite your friends. Let's make it a coffee party. Friday morning, 6.30 Mount Standard Time. Wake up with Jim, and then Sunday morning, 7 o'clock Mountain Standard Time, it's coffee with Jim. Well, thank you, my friends. We will... Uh, Talk to you on Friday morning.